Welcome back to the Programmatic Digest podcast, a discussion on top programmatic and digital news with other digital ninjas. I'm your host, Ellen Parker, your very own programmatic sensei. You can now sign up on our website to receive a weekly alert every time a new episode drops or sign up for a monthly recap if you like to binge. Head over to programmaticdigest.com for more information. As we continue to brace during these trying times of the coronavirus outbreak, I want to send you and your family some love and encouragement and hope that you're healthy, safe, and at home. With that said, in the Sunset's Corner this week, we welcome Rocky Merchant, Paid Media Manager, Growth Lab at the Growth Lab at PayPal. Welcome to the Sunset's Corner, Rocky, and thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me, Helene. I'm really excited to speak with you today. We are so excited to have you. Tell us, uh, before we, we go into this article, the two articles that we want to cover today, how about you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I've been working in programmatic for a bit um, here at PayPal. My responsibility is to work on paid media strategy for PayPal brands. So that would include programmatic buying. That would also include buying in the paid social realm and then also exploring other digital activations that PayPal should consider as um, media opportunities. I look at PayPal brands, uh, not just only PayPal itself, but we've been working in partnership with other brand teams to just share best practices around paid media, as well as um, with other global teams to understand in different regions how uh, paid strategy um, differs. Really cool. Well, thank you. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. Great. So the first article we're going to cover was written by Andrew Bluestein on Adweek, and it's called Iris.TV Grows Its Contextual Video Marketplace for a post-cookie world. For our listeners out there, here's a quick recap of the article before we dig into the questions. Iris.tv announced integrating with CompScore brand safety and contextual targeting segments into its video marketplace. The video marketplace, which will be available for both direct and private market deals made through a supply-side platform. Irish TV had announced a similar partnership, I believe, last year around December with Oracle Data Cloud. So for those who are not familiar with Iris.tv, they run a video personalization platform that surfaces recommended video content for its publishers, partners, which include Gannett and a handful of CBS properties. And I believe their network is as large as 200 supply side vendors, I believe. So Rocky, before I get too much into the article, first, what's your, your take on this article? The fact that a major video marketplace is partnering with actually a brand safety giant. I think the events described in this article is something we're going to see a lot more in the programmatic environment or just in the digital media environment is um, a lot of contextual partners, a lot of connected TV partners or, you know, other media vendors are going to start bolstering their offerings um, in ways that aren't 1000% reliant on cookie based targeting. So in the case of this connected TV provider partnering with brand safety, it makes them, you know, a stronger offering that they can then go out to different brand marketers to say, hey, we're a good option too. And we're also brand safe. Um, I think as connected TV has evolved in the past few years, like, Initially, not a ton of advertisers were doing it, but more and more we're seeing it as a much more common activation. And these are just additional tools that make it, um, I guess, more feasible for brand marketers to put a lot of investment in it. Not only is it an engaging channel, but it's also a brand safe channel. So I think, you know, it's something that I wouldn't not expect to see, for instance. So I think like we're going to be seeing a lot of contextual partners, especially as, you know, our programmatic environment is drastically changing given that 
browsers are dropping the third-party cookies. So it's something that we should expect to see more of is how these contextual partners enhance their offerings. Right. I think you bring a good point. And I think I'm going to put PayPal on, on the spot here because I will be really curious about how this whole third-party cookie-less world has affected some of your strategy or even mm -hmm. if it's affected any strategy, one. And secondly, if you were to consider implementing connected TV, would you consider working with somebody like Iris TV now that you know, well, they're not only a major video marketplace, but also they're really going above and beyond to stay ahead of what's going on in the industry by implementing this partnership uh, with a brand safety partner like Comscore? Yeah. I think I can answer this question like just as a general brand marketer. And I think this is something that every brand marketer is going to face, um, not just, you know, my team at PayPal, but we're not going to know the solutions. Like, how do we change our media strategy to this cookie-less environment right away? And I think like the first step as a brand marketer to be responsible about your media strategy and really understand what you're currently running right now and auditing exactly, you know, how am I getting to the audiences that we've scoped out in our marketing objectives? So if I'm a brand marketer trying to understand how impacted am I, I think that's the first place to start is how many of my tactics are cookie based and how many of my tactics aren't. There are a lot of things that, you know, you can buy in programmatic media that aren't cookie based. It's, you know, it like app placements or contextual targeting, connected TV. I think There are a lot of options out there that as we move or transition to this new environment become more enticing because you've essentially leveled the playing field a little bit more for those types of media partners, like a contextual partner. I think for connected TV, this is something even outside of the cookie debate. This is something that's happening. People are changing the way that they're watching TV. They're watching it in more of these streaming services that you can buy media on now via connected TV partners. So I think even outside, you know, cookie deprecation, it, it's something that every brand should consider as a, a way to reach their customers because that's just, you know, how we're consuming media. That's a great point, actually. The fact that you just mentioned that something CTV was moving towards as an industry in the first place, despite what's happening with the third-party cookies right now. And um, yeah, I, I actually... I want to quote the article right now from Richard Hayden, the Iris TV co-founder and chief operation officer. He says, it's bringing together online contacts and brand safety data using the same taxonomy mm -hmm. and standards that agency and brands are used to buying. And he adds, we're just migrating that onto video. So yeah. I'm not sure I haven't heard any of the CTV vendors do that yet. I mean, I'm sure when utilizing a DSP, you have the ability to add some of those brand safety right away at the settings mm -hmm. versus doing it, you know, buying uh, the actual data. So I'm not sure how that affects those media buyers mm -hmm. using those DSPs. Um, but I think it's really cool that they're trying to get ahead of it. Yeah. And I think as a brand marketer, you have two objectives with your media. One's not more important than the other. Both are as important. One is, is my media performing? So are you driving the right actions? Or, you know, are you driving the right levels of engagement? Is your media, you know, viewable? Is it seen by real people, etc.? And then there's the second part of it is, is it safe? Is it in environments that are not detrimental to my brand? Is it in environments that, you know, really coincide with the brand's image and what the brand is trying to do? So I think... 
in order to be a competitive offering and in order to be an offering that becomes mainstream, then brand safety is a huge part of that. So I, I'm not surprised that, um, you know, Iris TV or, you know, other video providers would go this way as a major strategic step for them would be to strike up a brand safety partnership. So let's go in another direction here, but still really related to what we're talking about. Let's go ahead and talk about the second article. It was reading by Pramish Purayal, the chief technology officer at Ranker. It's an article on ad exchanger called What Should Replace the Third Party Cookie? It depends on who you ask. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I want to explain to the listener out there that Pramish is uh, so CTO at Ranker, which is a website. Um, so he would be either considered a publisher or he will definitely be on the sell side. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of those comments were very, very specific. Um, so I just wanted to put a disclaimer on that, but very, very informative because basically this is how I resume this article. First party data meets data science. Mm-hmm. So he proposed an alternative solution focusing on first party data plus some data science to solve the scale issue. I'm quoting directly from the article here. He adds on, in a first-party world, we exchange scale and volume for accuracy. Contextual data is easy to expose, but what about user segments locked behind the closed doors of DMPs for too long? What if a publisher could use the data they know about their content and users create segments? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of flipping things here. We had the browsers segmenting the data before. Now he's saying, what if the publisher actually starts segmenting some of those audiences? I've had a few guests on the podcast and their opinions have been, you know, now it is shifting the gear away from the advertisers Mm -hmm. or the marketers like you and I. And giving a little bit more power to the actual publisher, the one selling their second party data. And uh, I'm I'm actually intrigued about what you think, just that gear shifting towards the publisher, allowing them to maybe segment their audience and selling it to us that way versus us going via a browser, which we all know is going to go away soon or in the next. Yeah. I found this article to be really fascinating just in terms of it's it's more of a thought experiment. Like, what do we do now? And I think he brings up a lot of good points in that these publishers can come up with their own data segments, but then would the taxonomies have to align across publishers, et cetera, et cetera. And you can kind of see, you know, what are some of the potential pitfalls of third-party cookie deprecation, at least for identifying like certain groups of people. And as a media buyer, I'm really interested to understand what are some of the solutions that publishers come to at an individual level to make best use of their data, but to also as a media buyer, then how do I rebuild my relationships with publishers to understand the best way to buy media from them? How do I build a pocket of knowledge, you know, maybe that's publisher specific to say publisher A is good with this type of audience segment, publisher B more so with this group of audience segments. And it changes the buying landscape quite a bit if that's the model that we're going to go to. I think, you know, as third party cookies are depreciated across multiple browsers, like it might just be the reality of it. And your knowledge as a buyer has to change to be more publisher aligned, or maybe there's another thing that happens. But I think it's something that we have to be aware of with third party cookie deprecation, publisher data becomes really, really important. Um, especially if you want to get to a really refined audience. Um, there are a lot of publishers out there that have really strong, you know, proprietary data. So, you know, kind of publishers like New York Times does a lot of segmentation that's only accessible on that website is a good example. So I think 
as a media buyer, it's something you have to be aware that is happening in the market, but also we don't know what the answer is yet. So just putting your ear to the ground of the conversation, I think is a good first step. Or at least that's how how I'm going to look at it as a media buyer. Right. And I agree. This is very commentary. Yeah. It gives us basically comments. Is he just commenting on what we're going to do? And I love the fact that you mentioned the New York Times on their segmentation efforts. Mm-hmm. To be honest, like I'm almost thinking like private deals are probably going to either go away or be redefined at this point. Because if a publisher holds that data and doesn't release it because they want buyers like you and I to go via them directly, I wonder how it's going to shape, you know, the private marketplace that we know now or today. Yeah. Basically projecting in the future here. But I mean, like you said, I would be more willing to go directly to that publisher versus going via a third party. But at the same time, it goes back to is this really considered programmatic buy? Is it just a digital buy? Because now we're not programmatically buying through a DSP. We're going direct. Yeah, I think my opinion on it is, again, like the buying landscape or the buying knowledge that you should have changes very drastically. And I think in terms of how PMPs will change, they're already like a private marketplace that is also coupled with data capabilities. So some publishers do this really, really well. Not only can they get you on the right context on your site, but they can also provide you certain types of audiences that are really specific to their site. So think about retailers that do this. They have really powerful shopping data that can really supercharge your buy. I think when it comes to actually the active media buying and, you know, is it programmatic? Is it not programmatic? As the media buyer, it's like programmatic's just a label, right? Like what right, you're doing, yeah, yeah. You're, you're trying to identify <laughs> the right strategy. Anyway. Exactly. To put money in and whether it's bought Everything now is bought in real time. So that's really the essence of programmatic. But I would say I'm less concerned about being not as programmatic. But am I getting to the right place on the digital activation? Am I getting to the right person? And how am I getting to that person? Does it seem sound? That's a good way to put it. And before we move on to our next segment, I did wanted to highlight that in the article, he mentioned another alternative where he points out that W3C has been working on the turtle dove mechanism and he defines it as such. Coding directly from the article, the gist is that the browser becomes the holder of the personal data, which sites can push into and ultimately access for advertising. I think the idea here has legs as the data is kept in the browser and only submitted when requested, presumably approved to do so. In theory, it allows the user to easily see what data is being stored if they want to edit or clear it and potentially where and when it's being sent. So that's the definition. I went ahead and Google it because I was very curious and I have attached the additional resource for our listeners in our show notes. This definition is pulled directly from GitHub and it defines the turtle dove mechanism is triggered when the browser is in an interest group and loads a web page that gets its ads from a publisher ad network that is one of the group's reader domains or one of their ad partners. I'm I'm not gonna lie. I did not understand what Turtle Dove is about. <laughs> I don't know if you did. I reread it a few times. I did a lot of Googling. Maybe it's because I am not a publisher that <laughs> my intelligence stops at a certain point. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm curious, what do you think about the turtle dove? And if you, you're the same as me, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think eventually just proposing solutions. And this is a really common theme around data management is 
how are we going to give our users consent to what different publishers know about us, whether it's what everybody on the internet knows about us or whether it's what publisher to publishers know about us. It's about giving control back to the actual individual user to say like, I want to delete what you know about me, or I want to manage what parts of me you know about. And that's, you know, pretty reflected in our industry now. It's something that we need to consider is how do users want their data to be managed? It's, you know, not a surprising thing to me that there would be mechanisms around individuals controlling that understanding. I'm really curious about how generationally um, the attitudes around data privacy will change. So I think if you ask different age groups, like, how do you feel about, you know, these publishers on the internet or a Facebook or another paid social platform knowing so much about you? Yeah. You know, if you pull different people, there are just really wildly different levels of curiosity around it. Some people understand that, you know, yeah, I kind of accept it as the cost of doing business of being and consuming content on the internet. Some people mm -hmm. really want to make sure that their privacy on the internet is very, very high and that these publishers can't take any information from them. I wonder if it's a generational thing. I wonder if, you know, we poll a generation that, um, you know, was probably more native to technology, if the, the answer would be different to those who are not. And I, I honestly don't know which group would say what, but I think I'd be interested to understand how in the next 10 years, the attitudes around personal data management and personal feelings about sharing data will change or will it not change. So I think that also has a big part to do with it. And also, I think we use this whole privacy thing and uh, third-party cookie deprecation, like you said. It's almost like they're related, but they're really not. Like one is not here because of, of one. Like people, I think Colin Claveno at uh, 360i said on the podcast before that, people don't always pay attention about how their data is used. They freak out over data breaches mm -hmm. first. And so it just goes back to this. And I think the reason why I was really confused about what Turtle Dove is actually is because it's suggesting that the browser continues to provide some level of details and audiences. And I don't know if that's a realistic ask, especially if the browser is trying to, <laughs> on the contrary, not give us anything. I mean, Apple did it. Firefox did that. I don't know. Whew, it feels like it, they did it like at least seven years ago, but it was only a couple years ago. So it, when I read that, I was like, but wait a minute, maybe I'm not understanding because I'm on, I see a lot of one side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing. I think, I think we're definitely be on the lookout. If anybody out there yeah. <laughs> knows what is going on. <laughs> I would agree with that sentiment from your last guest is just, you know, maybe the concern isn't around knowing my data, but it's when you aren't responsible with my data. So I, you know, I think like regardless of how users feel about their data, if any advertiser or any publisher is managing personal information, you have an obligation to keep that safe, to use that in a way that's responsible, to use that in a way that's, um, you know, expected by if it's customer data, how your customers would expect you to use their personal data or how if it's not a customer, but a prospect or someone on the, that's just like a good way to move about the world. So I think from a brand marketer perspective, okay, maybe people don't care, but like, it is very important we have safeguards to protect people's data and to use it in a way that's responsible. Right. And then that's why it's important that we stay ahead of it, right? Like, yeah. It's just because people don't understand. Or again, I, I'm really not talking bad about consumers. I know it's <laughs> <about consumers. laughs> I, I am one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I am one of them. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I, I have a very low level of care of 
um, you know, how <laughs> this is probably horrible to say as a marketer, but um, I, I don't, I'm not super concerned if Google knows that I like a certain, you know, basketball team, or if they understand that I have um, a cat and a dog. I, for me, I'm like, oh, that makes my advertising more relevant. Of course, a programmatic professional would say that, but you know, I'm probably not the only person in that bucket. Whereas, you know, even in my age bracket in a similar kind of background for me, you know, my partner is very paranoid about, you know, what marketers would know about her. She's like kind of the, the modern day Ron Swanson. So I feel like she doesn't want anybody to know, you know, about who her identity is and she's entitled to that level of privacy. I think that's the extreme example. I, I really wonder how these attitudes will change in the next, you know, few years. And on that note, I think it's a good segue into our next segment where we like to shine a light on diversity and inclusion. Do you have an agency, a brand, a creative, or an example to share with us related to diversity and inclusion? Yeah, I think one of the better creatives that I've seen or that I thought just from a personal perspective was really interesting around DNI was Alta Beauty ran a campaign in which they showed different types of women or different just types of people that use their products. So there were, you know, women of different races. There was a teenage boy who used the product and it's like, we don't make you beautiful. You already are. So I thought that was pretty good. I think also just visibility, obviously showing your full market, not just a core segment of your market that you think will test well. It's like, I, I think a lot of brands are seeing that message that they have to show different types of people to reflect their audience base. And it's becoming a necessary part of their advertising. Oh, that's a great uh, example. And on the <laughs> side note, would you mind just sharing that YouTube link later to me? Sure, so of course. It. <laughs> it's a good one. Okay, cool. And so in closing, do you mind sharing a fun fact about yourself? Yeah, I'm, I love animals a lot. I have a lot of pets. I have uh, two cats named Perito and Meowsers. And then I have a French bulldog mix named Handsome Alfred. If you want to follow him on Instagram at, at Handsome Alfred, he likes to post a lot of pictures about his adventures. <laughs> <laughs> at Handsome Alfred. We'll, we'll make sure to follow him. <laughs> yeah. And our next question is, what is the latest book you've read or latest Audible you've listened to or the next book that is on your list? So right now, and I feel like one of the books I'm reading, I don't like that much, but everybody else likes it. I'm, I'm reading right now a book called American Spy, and it's about an African-American woman um, and her career in the CIA kind of in the, the 70s to like the early 90s. And she takes a mission that is somewhat questionable to move up in her organization. I, I've been enjoying it. It's nice. It's like on Obama's best book list, but I feel like I haven't been as won over by it as many other people who've reviewed it. <laughs> and who's the author? Laura Wilkinson, I think. Um, it's an entertaining book. I've enjoyed it. Cool. I'll definitely add the link to our show notes. And before we part ways, do you have any advice to give to any programmatic ninjas trying to get their feet wet into the industry, any entry level uh, ninjas out there? What would you tell yourself maybe if I knew that things would be different? I think for programmatic early career professionals, I would say curiosity at that point in your career will be a driving force in your success. Programmatic and just media buying in general is ever changing. And there's no set of rules to learn. It's really just how do I ask the right questions to get my campaign you know, to the best place possible? How do I ask the right questions to make sure that my strategy is sound? How do I get feedback from people? And I think a lot of that is driven by curiosity. 
I would also say in terms of two programmatic professionals, not in their early stages, one of the things that if my unsolicited piece of advice would be, you know, <laughs> let's not be obsessed with the programmatic label. How can we make it more about media buying and digital buying and what the digital landscape would look like? I think, especially as we're going through this transition of, you know, our targeting tactics will be completely different in two years than what they were, you know, our strength as media buyers will still be there. We're just navigating a whole new world and it might not be called programmatic, but it's pretty closely related. So I think not getting too caught up in the programmatic label will be helpful. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> now. <laughs> Do you want me to, to give a different oh, <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, this is perfect because... That is part of the reason why I started the podcast was to challenge myself to stay educated on the industry. That yeah. is, like you mentioned, so forever advancing industry. And then I realized as I progressed with, within roles that mm-hmm. naturally media buying was a little bit more than just programmatic. And mm-hmm. so it changed my mindset. And that's why I invite also different uh, guests on the podcast. I mean, I know you and I are very <laughs> programmatic and digital media, yeah. but I've invited influencers, social media, SEO folks, because the reality is that we're all in here for a client and that we are in the paid media and there's a reason why we're here. Mm -hmm. And I have said that also on previous episodes that all the tactics work really well all together. Mm -hmm. They complement each other. Whenever you have a cross-channel media strategy where you're targeting on different channels, targeting different messages, targeting different format, targeting different audiences, you name it. It tends to perform so well, but if the organic side doesn't communicate with the paid side, like it doesn't matter how much dollars you spend, mm-hmm. it's not doing your best because you know if the website sucks, you yeah. should probably have your client fix it, for instance, because then, <laughs> you know, things like that. And I'm realizing that, OK, so we are just we're one piece. Yeah. We're one you're putting piece. pieces of the puzzle together mm-hmm. and then you get the final image. But those pieces can be very important. They're not always needed or necessary, but putting all of those pieces together as you go is very important. So thank you so much for of joining us again. We had so much fun. (laughs) I hope this was helpful. I really enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Great. Talk to you soon. Again, you'll find everything we've discussed today in our show notes on our website, programmaticdigest.com. You can also sign up to receive our newsletter weekly when a new episode drops or monthly if you like to binge like I do. In conclusion, fam, our mission on this podcast is to share knowledge, highlight diversity and inclusion in our industry, and educate ourselves as we continue to build this community of curious and confident programmatic ninjas. And if you're listening to this and you made it this far, please stay safe and stay at home. Thank you.